Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP, Chapel Hill and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and here on the program we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 14 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank these terrific underwriters for their support. How does social behavior influence genetic variation and gene regulation? How do genetic differences in gene regulation reciprocally influence behavior? And what are the implications of this relationship for evolutionary biology and human health? Those are the phenomenally large questions that my guest on Radio In Vivo today seeks to answer, and she has made considerable progress thanks to her work in the animal world. Her pursuits combine evolutionary anthropology and genomics, and her ingenious methods and profound new knowledge earned her the recognition of the MacArthur Foundation in 2019. Yes, she won the so-called Genius Grant, our first MacArthur Fellow here on Radio In Vivo. Jenny, Jenny Tung is an associate professor in the Departments of Evolutionary Biology, Evolutionary Anthropology, and Biology at Duke University, where she has been on the faculty since 2012. She is also a faculty associate of the Duke University Population Research Institute. She earned her B.S. degree and her Ph.D. at Duke, served a postdoc in the Department of Human Genetics at the University of Chicago, and then returned to Durham in 2012. Jenny Tung, welcome to Radio In Vivaga. Thanks for having me. Jenny, I, I want to dive deep into the specifics of your research over the course of our hour together. But first, as I do with many guests, I'd love to hear about your journey in life and academia. Tell us the story of what brought you to where you are today. Well, um, 
As you pointed out, I actually was an undergraduate at Duke, and and when I started, like many of our undergraduates, I thought I might become a doctor. Um, I didn't really have a very clear idea, and I, I at the time had pretty wide ranging interests, and was really excited to be at a university that offered a lot of um, you know different sorts of courses in different departments. Um, so that actually led me as a as a freshman to end up taking a course cluster. Um, that was thematically organized around the idea of forging social ideals. Um, so actually many of my fellow students went on to work in social justice and, and um, those kinds of careers. But one class within that sort of cluster of classes was about um, evolutionary explanations for um, social behavior and um, the evolution of altruism and social ideals. And that really caught my attention because it suggested that we could use um, – uh, a sort of a hard science biological lens in order to understand some of the things that um, affect us most from day to day, which are our interactions with other people. Um, and that kind of stuck in my head and, you know, didn't make me think, well, this is what I want to spend my career doing, but did make me continue to explore um, the sciences and the possibility of doing research in the sciences. And, and little by little, I just kind of got hooked on it and ended up um, sticking with it. So you, you had a kind of an epiphany, but then followed on and realized that really was a, a calling, as it were. It was a slow epiphany. It was one of those experiences where I was like, this is an amazing professor, uh, Julie Johnson, who's actually still in the Triangle mm-hmm. area, um, and an amazing course and an amazing um, sort of set of material. Uh, and I thought, wow, I just want more of that. But it took a while for me to understand how I wanted to meld that with, um, you know, genetics and animal behavior at the same time. Well, we have to get out another another shout out for a former guest on Radio In Vivo. It's been quite a few years ago, but Greg Ray was one of your uh, teachers, too. Wasn't That's right. He? Greg Ray was one of my Ph.D. supervisors. Absolutely. So he's had a big influence on my life as well. Excellent. Well, um, Jenny, it seems to me, at least, uh that your combination of evolutionary anthropology and genomics is rather unusual, uh, or or is it? Is that just my impression? Um, so there have certainly been people working in in what I think would normally be called anthropological genetics for some time. Um, and that sort of evolved into anthropological genomics. That's where you hear all of this really fascinating news coming down about um, revisions to human evolutionary history, our discovery that um, there was interbreeding between our ancestors and and other archaic hominins, other um, groups that were closely related to us that are now extinct. Uh, so genetics and genomics have certainly had a role to play in evolutionary anthropology. Um, I think... Uh, the dominant role, though, has been in understanding um, how we have moved around the globe, you know, our population movements to, to colonize the world, and in understanding how different um, species are related to each other, especially in the primate tree. Um, so the, the merging of anthropology and genetics and genomics is um, not that rare. I, I think that adding the social behavioral component to it, and particularly the influence from the social sciences, which is something I've been fortunate um, to have since I started at Duke, um, is perhaps what makes it a little bit less of a common combination. I see. Okay. Uh, well, you know, one major aspect of your research, of course, 
involves looking at how social status mm -hmm. uh, affects genes mm -hmm. and, by extension, health. How have you gone about studying that area. It seems like it would be very fertile for research. Yeah. Well, so I already mentioned that I've been really influences by, uh, influenced by social scientists at Duke. And, um, I would be remiss in not, in not saying that, um, people working in economics and sociology and psychology have been very, very interested in how aspects of the social environment influence health for a long time. So if I talk to my sociologist colleagues, they'd say, well, we, we knew that, you know, social integration and social bonds, uh, you know, predicted how long, how long you live, um, you know, since the, since the late 19th century. Like this goes back to Durkheim. Um, it just hasn't been studied as intensively, uh, in the biological sciences. And I think there's a variety of reasons. Um, why? But part of my background is in behavioral ecology, and of all of the subdisciplines within um, the natural sciences, behavioral ecologists have been very interested in the consequences of social behavior for um, how many kids animals have, how many offspring animals have, and and how long they live. Those are kind of the currencies of how we think about you know fitness in a Darwinian sense. Sure. So. Um, so that behavioral ecology background gave me some insight into how you could use animals to study um, social status and its consequences for, for particular outcomes. In our case, we look a lot at gene regulation in the immune system. Mm -hmm. And so we basically do that in, in two kinds of ways. We study both wild primates. So we study baboons um, in Kenya. I work on this long-term project um, that's followed baboons for many years with my colleague Susan Alberts at Duke and uh, Gene Altman at Princeton and Beth Archie at Notre Dame. So it's a collaborative collaboration between multiple groups. Mm -hmm. And we study captive uh, rhesus macaques, another um, monkey species in uh, the Yerkes National Primate Research Center with colleagues at uh, Emory and University of Chicago. And there, um, we have some control over their social environments. So we can do some experimental manipulations and kind of see what happens at the level of, of how genes function. Sure. Well, I want to explore both the, the baboon research and the macaque research. Mm -hmm. uh, but first, uh, one of the burning questions I had for you is, in reading over all of your materials, it struck me that what you're really looking at is a mind-body connection issue. Mm -hmm. uh, would you agree with that assessment? I think that's true, uh, with the caveat that um, we have not at this point uh, gotten very deep into into how the mind works. Of course, the brain is super important in this process because, you know, that's where we sense and integrate um, our social experiences. Uh, our research has focused more on what happens in the periphery and the other parts of the body, particularly in the immune system, which perhaps uh, may be a little bit more closely connected to what actually compromises your health. But, yeah, I've started becoming increasingly interested in thinking about that whole pathway from – from, you know, brain to periphery. Uh, so maybe, maybe down the road. Okay. It'll be interesting to watch how your, your work evolves as it were and, and see where that, that part of it goes. Yeah. Uh, well, your work with the Am Amboseli, am mm -hmm. I pronouncing yep. that correct? That's right. Amboseli Baboon Research Project in, in Southern Kenya, uh, has really been incredibly productive. 
so set the stage for us about how you became involved with that project. Uh, and it's been going on a very long time, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, so the long-term research in Ambicelli on the baboons was actually started in 1971. So next year will be the 50th anniversary of the project, um, which is pretty amazing. It's one of the longest-running field studies of, of large mammals in the world. Um I have not been involved with it since 1971. So the answer to, you know, how did I get involved was, um, you know, the short answer is serendipity, right? I was a undergraduate at Duke and, um, uh, well, the funny thing is I decided I wanted to do an animal behavior concentration as part of my biology major. And I was assigned an advisor initially, um, and I kind of happened to wander into the um, director of undergraduate studies office and um, the woman who was doing sort of advisor advisee assignment said, actually, don't, 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 you know, go with this person, this particular faculty member. We have this pretty new faculty member at the time, um, Susan Alberts, who was uh, my other PhD advisor and has now had an outsized um, impact on my life, both personal and professional. She said, this, this woman is great. You should go talk to her. She should be your advisor. And Susan was the co-director and is still the co-director of the Amselli Baboon Research Project. And so I got a chance to meet Susan when I was 19 years old. And um, I don't think I quite grasped the uh, extent of – there's no way I grasped the extent of the project at the time – but I got, you know, my foot in the door that way. And as a PhD student, I started developing um, further the capacity to do genetic and genomic work in Ambicelli. And, you know, um, I just uh, haven't been able to, to let it go. Nor should you. <laughs> well, right. Exactly. <laughs> well, so you really have an extensive body of research to draw upon, don't you? I do. Yeah. Um People often ask me why we want to do genomic work in wild baboons. This is not the typical setting for doing um, genomic studies. These are what biologists call non-model organisms, meaning that they aren't mice, they aren't worms, they aren't flies, they aren't yeast, they aren't the sorts of species that you study if you want a lot of really fine experimental control and a really large community um, where uh, that has already built up experimental resources for the animal, right? Basically, sure. that's just another way of saying they're hard to work with because you can't breed them and you can't keep them in the lab and you can't control their environment. Um, but because of this sort of decades of work, we know a lot about these animals. We know a lot about the environmental variation that's important to them. We not know a lot about their social relationships with one another. Um, the way animals are watched in Ambicelli is that um, individual baboons are followed from birth to death. They're recognized on site um, and watched almost every day. Wow. So, How long do they typically live? Yeah, um, it can vary a lot because there's a lot of early life mortality. But say if a female baboon in Ambicelli makes it to reproductive maturity, which is about four years old in, in a wild baboon in, in where we study them, um, then, you know, she actually has a pretty good chance of making it into her mid-teens. The longest-lived animal we've ever followed, um, a female named Dottie, she lived uh, to age 27. Wow. And mm -hmm. males tend to live a bit shorter lives, just as they do in, in humans. So... Um, 
Again, non-model system, tough animal to study. They live a long time, not as long as humans, but they live a long time, meaning that in order to have that depth of information, to know so much about what matters to these animals, um, you know, I was, again, really fortunate to be able to, you know, add my expertise to a long-term study where people had been interested in their behavior and in their demography and and um, in their life histories for, for so long. We really draw on that information in order to motivate the questions that we ask about I'll, genomics. Yeah. I'll bet, yeah. So yeah, ha- has the baboon's uh, gene been sequenced at this point? Yeah, they, they have. So um, the bad boon genome has been sequenced and assembled, and it was reported um, formally, although some of the data had been out there previously, in a publication that my lab was a little part of uh, last year. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. That, that recent. That recent, wow. yes. okay. Um, now, I understand that the project is now expanding beyond baboons, and you you mentioned this a bit earlier, to rhesus macaques, Mm -hmm. meerkats, and mole rats. Right, yeah. Uh, What's going on with all of them? Well, so um, the baboons are the system I've studied the longest, and the one that I know the most about and the easiest for us to take our kind of molecular perspective and think about whether that's, you know, the, the sorts of measurements we're making are are meaningful in a true wild natural population. Um, but it does have some limitations in the sense that uh, we aren't doing experimental studies. And so it's always hard to know whether we're seeing causal connections, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of classical correlation causation problem, which we also face when um, when people study humans. The reason we started studying the rhesus macaques, which we, uh, my lab started working on the rhesus macaques, um, well, I started working about rhesus macaques about, about 10 years ago when I was a postdoc and carried that to my lab, is because in captivity, we can do some controlled manipulations of the social environment, and we can um, then have a lot of power to, to, um, to be able to tell whether the social environment is really causal to the sorts of genomic outcomes that we're studying as opposed to other kinds of possible pathways, right? In humans, when we think about social environments um, or social adversity and health or lifespan outcomes, again, the data are really, really strong in terms of a correlation between them. But we don't know if it's because social adversity itself is costly to our bodies or if social adversity um, and it certainly does to a large extent, patterns whether or not you have healthcare access or whether you are likely to smoke or whether you're likely to have a healthy diet. So that's a whole different mm-hmm. type of explanation. Lots of different pathways. Lots of different pathways. And so mm-hmm. that is the reason why um, why biologists often turn to experimental animal models because if you want to figure out, you know, which way the arrows go or isolate a particular arrow of many, mm-hmm. then that gives you the ability to do that. So we actually can manipulate social status in the rhesus macaques, and that's been um, very useful for us in, in sort of asking, well, does the social environment itself, does social status itself, when everybody's getting the same health care and nobody's smoking and everybody has the same diet and everybody's living in groups of the same size, does that have an effect? So that's why we started studying them. Uh, it sounds like you could uh, really have some, uh, as I mentioned earlier, very productive uh, research outcomes there. Uh, how, with the captive population, how do you control for the stresses Inherent in captivity. 
Right. Well, so um, these are all the animals that we study are all socially housed, um, which is sort of uh, it's natural for for all of the species I study. Actually, I study them all because they're social mammals, yeah. and so um, they are at least living in groups with adequate space and enough um, enough to eat, and actually pretty good health care when it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is still a question, as always arises, of whether when you're doing something in a captive environment, whether that is really, um, we call it ethologically relevant, which is just a term that means, is this real, yeah. right? Are yeah. you just studying something that is a an artifact, an outcome of, of doing things in a way that's different from what animals do in their natural environments? And again, that's, that's why I really like being able to study both captive and wild animals. We've now um, used some of the same uh, approaches to measure how immune cells are regulated in both the captive macaques and in the wild baboons. And that's allowed us to say, oh gosh, we're seeing a lot of parallels. We're seeing a lot of similarities. Sometimes we see key differences too. And um, that gives me more confidence that what we're seeing is is not simply because they're in captive a captive environment. I see. Okay. Well, uh, I'd like to dive into some of the major conclusions You've reached mm-hmm. by working, I, I guess, particularly with the baboon population. But uh, if the captive macaques enter in, that's fine, too. Uh, now, I understand that with the baboons, the females inherit their social status from their mothers. But the males have to win their social status in battle. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So, um Baboons are, again, very social. They live in groups that consist of adult males, adult females, juveniles, dependent offspring, um, and... How big is the typical group? It can vary quite a bit. So on the small size, you might see, a small side, you might see a group of 20. On the large side, you might see a group of 120. And over the time period that the project has watched animals in the same environment, we've seen, you know, the whole range. Hmm. Um, but... In all cases, you know, you have kids, they grow up in the social groups in which they were born, and eventually someone's got to leave, right? So um, that process is something that um, behavioral biologists call dispersal. Um, and in the baboons that we study, it's the males who do it and not the females. So females stay in the groups they were born in throughout their lives. Males, um, you know, go through puberty, adolescence, and then they leave. They go find another group, and those other groups um, are going to be where they try to make their living. And so for... Um, for female baboons, they're very likely to live with their moms and their sisters um, for their entire lives. And so their moms do a lot to help them um, sort of attain social status. So the typical pattern in female baboons um, is that uh, – um, uh, is that young females will kind of just insert in the, in the ladder, in the social ladder, right below their moms. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, interestingly, if, if, if they're, if they lose their moms, um, when they're young, which happens sometimes and is pretty costly to a baby baboon, um, they often don't 
make it to where we would ex- sort of expect them to be in the social status hierarchy, which is why we think it's really the moms who are who are kind of you know putting their thumb on the scale to to get them there. Um, but of course, males don't have that because they're not with their moms, they're not with their families, and so males go through this very different process where you know they they show up in this new group. They have to scope out all the other males in the group. All of them are quite interested, you know, at being at the top of the pyramid because that's where they're most likely to um, compete successfully for females, for mates. And um, the way they compete is through physical competition, through physical condition. So it's a really different process than it is for females. Interesting. I I had a, a guest, uh, someone you're probably familiar with, who studies bonobos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what a different, completely different social structure those animals have Absolutely. than what you're describing. So much interesting um, evolution, uh, evolutionary diversity in, in social behaviors, even within primates. Absolutely. Indeed. Well, um, I understand that in baboon males, uh, you have found strong links between social status and how genes turn on and off. Mm-hmm but not in females. Uh, the figure I saw, and I, I can't remember if it came from one of your yeah. uh, pieces, but uh, it was 72,200 genes whose activity varied with status in males, but only 25 in females. That, that's, that's a fascinating uh, figure. Uh, that, that's a really direct yeah. connection yeah, so I think um, our figure in males is in the thousands. It's not quite that high, but okay. but it is, uh, you know, an order of magnitude or more than we find in females collected from the same population, you know, at the same time. Um, I can give you a little bit of update to to that that result. Please do. Um, we have we, so we published that result uh, a couple of years ago, and we've been adding to our sample size since then. Mm-hmm. And what we've found now is that absolutely the males um, are very sensitive to where they are in the dominance rank hierarchy or what how their genes are behaving. Uh, it may be very important to how uh, high they climb in the dominance rank hierarchy. I think that's a real possible explanation for what we're seeing in the baboons. Um, it turns out, as we've been able to add to our sample size, we also do pick up a clear signature of social status in the female baboons, too, it remains much weaker than in the males. You know, we're talking about hundreds of genes instead of thousands of genes mm-hmm. that we can connect activity, gene activity to to social status. But I think what's more interesting about that, you know, it'd be one thing if it's kind of the same pattern but kind of weaker, is that um, the patterns seem to be uh, quite different from one another. So... Um, it turns out that wild female baboons look a lot like captive female macaques in the direction and um, uh, identity of the genes that, you know, are associated with, with social status. And both of them look opposite to baboon males. So um, a potential interpretation of that of that finding is that in females, right, who, again, they they sort of are in a social hierarchy, and that social hierarchy doesn't really change. Um, they have very little social mobility across their lifespans, basically. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, being low-ranking looks like it's more likely to be physiologically stressful. But in baboon males, 
you know, again, living in the same population as those females and eating the same kinds of foods, it may actually be reversed. Um, and it may be actually uh, the energetically intensive process, the stressful process of fighting for high rank and trying to keep it that is actually um, more stressful for, for those animals. So we, it's, it's, it's really, it was really striking to us because again, same species, same environment, but a really different life for, um, males and then females and a really different meaning of social status. Now, when we talk about, uh, genes turning on and off mm-hmm. in, in this particular context, what does that actually mean biologically? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So we are not talking about the social environment, you know, reaching into our cells and changing our DNA sequence. By and large, all of our cells have exactly the same DNA sequence. Um, And so uh, one of the things that is interesting to us is thinking about how you take that same sequence, right, the same sort of, um, uh, you know, basic material that encodes for – the pieces of our bodies, right? And change it around so that, you know, like the easiest example is that the same genome, the same DNA sequence produces our livers and it also produces our hearts and it produces our hair follicles and it, you know, produces, um, you know, the lining in our intestines. Same sequence, but obviously producing really, really different results. So we can go from thinking about differences, you know, in parts of our body to thinking about the fact that our body is also different um, from day to day and actually hour to hour. So when you wake up and you haven't eaten anything, you know, overnight, your um, your genes are actually doing some different things, right? They're more or less active than they are after you've had breakfast. And now a bunch of um, physiological processes come into play to say, oh, you're not hungry anymore. Oh, you know, now we have to digest that starch that you just ate from, you know, your stack of pancakes or whatever. <laughs> so we're really comfortable with the idea that the environments that we experience shape how our body behaves. And changes in gene regulation, which is what we study, are a big part of that process. And that's what we mean when we talk about, okay, well, you always have, uh, you know, 20,000 genes in in each copy of your genome. But if you are in a liver cell or a heart cell or if you've had breakfast or you haven't or if you're chronically socially stressed or you're not, it's a different set of those genes that are – really active or relatively inactive. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're studying. We're studying an environment that happens to be a social environment um, that our evidence and that of others suggests also modulates the way our our bodies behave. So it's it's really a a concept that our our genes and our, our genome is a living dynamic system from literally minute to minute. Yeah, it can be. Um, so a good example of why you'd exactly want that to happen, right, is one one type of experiment that we often do is to collect blood from, from animals that we study. So we're just drawing blood um, like you would at the doctor, and then we sort of separate that blood into, you know, um, uh, like tube one and, and tube two. And in tube one, 
it, we just give it sort of the, the sort of food and conditions the cells in that blood need to live for a while. And in a tube two, uh, we give it all that stuff, but then we throw in something that makes those cells think they're being attacked by bacteria. And that is exactly the sort of situation where you really want your, your genes to be quite dynamic because what your cells should be doing if they're being infected by bacteria, you know, is very different than what they should be doing if there doesn't appear to be this sort of, you know, um, threat, uh, right in, in their, in their environment. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, the discrepancy you you described amongst between the female and male mm-hmm. uh, baboons is, is there any similar discrepancy uh, in humans or, or any of the other species you've studied? We don't know the answer to that yet. I'll bet you're trying to find out. Um, <laughs> I would like to find out. Yes, that, that's right. Uh, so this. So I'm going to give you an answer that that isn't part of. Um, a study and we don't have direct data for it. but i i think the the evidence so far suggests that people who um you know are also vulnerable to chronic socially induced stresses are more like the females in our studies the female baboons and the female macaques than they are like the males we also in at least many modern societies don't have a lot of social mobility and our um social status is you know you can probably think of some particular examples but by and large it's not predicted by direct physical competition which i'm i'm mostly happy about um <laughs> but but instead, we have these relatively stable social hierarchies, um, um, and I mean social hierarchies in a very broad sense here, right? Sure. Like in humans, we think about them as structured by occupation or by income or by education, all kinds of things going on in humans. We're very complicated social species. Um, and being at the sort of top or bottom of however you want to construct those ladders, um, that often sticks for a very long time and sometimes even intergenerationally. And so, I mean, the way we're interpreting our results from the baboons and macaques right now is that when we say social status, it's just not a monolithic thing. And we have to think a lot about how status is attained and how individuals maintain that status and how variable it is across the life the, the lifespan right and and so those are the kinds of things where i think oh you know i think i think our females are better models i think for what's going on in humans than our males are i see well, what about the role of epigenetics mhm yeah so um so I've been talking about gene activity and how genes sort of get turned on more, or turned off more. You know, it's kind of like, a, think about it more like um, like a dial, a volume dial than an on-off switch. That's typically what we're seeing. It's okay. just dialed up or dialed down. Yeah, makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, biologists are now very good at sort of measuring how dialed up and dialed down any particular gene is in a particular sample um, that we collect. But, you know, there's a sense in which that, you know, as as all research does, it just opens more questions, right? You want to know, well, why is it dialed up? And why is it dialed down? And why sometimes does that, you know, sort of 
high volume seem to persist for a long time, or low volume seem to persist for a long time, even if the thing that we think caused it to be moved up or moved down in the first place has stopped, even if it's over. And um, epigenetic mechanisms, what, a, what many people refer to as epigenetic mechanisms, are one possible explanation um, for why genes are going up or down, right? They, they describe this sort of large family of mechanisms, large family of explanations um, that uh, tell us at a sort of biochemical, at a molecular level, um, why some genes are more active than others. So one, um, you know, uh, epigenetic mechanism that we study in my lab is called DNA methylation. Mm-hmm. And again, we have to go back to, well, the DNA sequence is the same all the time. Sure. So what's happening that makes all of a sudden one gene more active than the other? And, and one possibility is is this idea of DNA methylation, which just chemically modifies the DNA. Basically, you're just sticking an extra carbon and hydrogens on certain parts of the DNA. And it turns out that can be important in affecting how this really long string of letters um, sort of winds itself up in the genome. We also studied that sort of configuration itself. Like, you know, with this part of the genome, is the DNA really, really, like, compacted? which probably means that genes in that stretch of sequence are not very active. Or in this stretch of DNA, can you think about this like thread, this long DNA thread of being kind of unwound around its spools, in which case it's much more likely for genes in that space to be active. So all of these are kind of, you know, ideas about gene regulation um, that relate to sort of epigenetic mechanisms that might explain why environments can do the things they do to change how our genome behaves. Well, along that same line, I saw a quote from you uh, that I I found quite provocative. Uh, You said, social status and immune health are interconnected. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, that's a really remarkable conclusion with all sorts of profound implications. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, so, um, you know, I can talk about that in a few different ways, but maybe I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some of the direct results from our data where we think that may be true. So, um, I, I talked a little bit about, uh, the experimental setup where we draw blood from our animals and, you know, we expose cells in that blood to, um, bacterial stimulation or to a stimulate a stimulant an environment that makes those cells think that they're under attack by a virus as well so we've done both of those things um those cells they respond and they respond really quickly which again exactly what they should do if you have a functioning immune system your cells should not be passive when they think that there's an invader they should try and mount all the sort of defensives that have evolved to keep us healthy what we found is that um, when we do this same experiment in individuals who are high status versus individuals who are low status, and even when we do those experiments in our captive animals where we have a lot of control over who's high status and who's low status, that response, how genes and how much genes turn up or down in response to something that they think is an invading um, bug, is actually 
fairly profoundly shaped by by their actual status. So those immune cells that are circulating in the blood somehow have information about the social status of the animals from which they come. And those responses that we're measuring, those gene regulatory responses that we're measuring when cells are faced with bacteria and viruses, those are your body's first line of defense against invading pathogens, invading bacteria and viruses. Um, and those processes, which are often closely related to inflammation, are also things that, if they're uncontrolled, um, can make us sick in the long term. So that's part of what I mean by mm -hmm. social status and sure. immune function being connected. You know, what we're doing is manipulating the social environment or measuring the social environment, depending on which species we're studying. And then we're watching all of these changes in genes involved in our defenses, including specifically when those genes are doing exactly what they've evolved to do, which is to try and deal with this invading um, invading uh, uh, bacteria or, or virus. Well, it, it strikes me that uh, an obvious next question, uh, based on what you just said, how does this play out in humans? You know, um, mm -hmm. it, it seems like it's a it's a fairly well established uh, concept that humans of lower socio I don't know I don't want to say socioeconomic but lower social status, uh, similar to what you you look at in the in the uh, baboons and macaques, are going to probably have less active immune systems is that is that true or does the does the science bear that out and how does that correlate with with your findings so what we know and um i'll use actually the term socioeconomic status here even though social status in okay. in other animals and socioeconomic status in humans you know there are some parallels but it's certainly not one-to-one -one. sure um but that tends to be what's measured in population studies of, of humans. People are measuring income or, you know, educational level or wealth or what have you as an index of socioeconomic status because the, you know, those are so closely tied together with notions of social status in, in, in humans. Um, what we know is that differences in socioeconomic status are, um, remarkably predictive of disease incidence and disease outcome. So if you um, look at the data uh, from the CDC itself or from these sorts of large studies of representative fractions of, for example, the American population, um, being low SES versus high SES correlates with diabetes, with cardiovascular disease, with um, incidence of cancer, and also with certain types of infectious disease and certain types of infections that uh, aren't necessarily themselves um, deadly, but that compromise the immune system. Um, and, and that is really clear from the data, right? What really isn't clear from the data, again, this goes back to the challenges of multiple pathways, is why that's happening. Yeah. Um, because lack of healthcare access has a big effect on health, right? Sure. And um, measures that people use f 
to index socioeconomic status um, may also feed back uh, um, to well may also be affected by health in in pretty important ways right if you're not healthy you're less likely to hold down a job or or finish a degree so you can get those sorts of relationships for multiple reasons that don't necessarily mean that your cells themselves right um actually respond in a different way because of the social environment per se. And that, that's the whole, you know, reason why this has been studied for such a long time, but it's still very confusing and one of the motivations for us to use animal models. Um, that being said, I, yeah, you kind of suggested this earlier. Um, we, we are very interested in whether the patterns that we've been observing in, you know, social non-human primates translate to patterns observed in our own species. Um, there are some data on how gene activity sort of um, correlates with measures of social status or social adversity. And um, if we try and compare our results with some of those results, I mean, there's some pretty striking um, similarities. For example, more activity and in inflammation-related genes with greater social adversity. Um, to my knowledge, uh, nobody has yet done the sort of bacterial, viral, um, or, you know, uh, pathogen challenges um, with with samples from humans mm -hmm. where we know a lot about their lives um, that we have in um, in the rhesus macaques and the baboons. But that's a doable experiment. And we are going to try and test some possibilities out in the next, um, you know, months to years to see whether we think that's translatable. Well, good luck with that. That'll be really interesting to see so. what happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, getting back to your experiment with the, the female uh, macaques, mm -hmm. you uh, mentioned that you sometimes are able to, in that controlled setting, uh, shuffle their social status. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of outcomes did you see as a result of uh, those measures? Right. So, um, so Reese's macaque females are normally a lot like female baboons. Normally, females grow up in the social groups that they were born in, and their um, status is really affected by their mom's status. You know, their moms help them fit into that, that social status ladder. But with adult females, it turns out that if you take females who never knew each other before, you know, so they don't buddy up together immediately, um, and you put them together into a new social group, that one of the biggest predictors of where they'll fall in the in the rank uh, hierarchy is who got there first. So mm. females who get there first tend to be high ranking and females who get there later tend to be sort of middle ranking and females who get there last tend to be low ranking. And so that's the kind of um, experimental paradigm we use. We take females who never knew each other, who aren't relatives, and we put them together in groups. And because they are such a hierarchical species naturally, they form a hierarchy really quickly. 
Um, we watch them for uh, a year or so, and then we can do a second experiment by basically taking the females who are at the top of that hierarchy and putting them together into a group and, you know, second in the hierarchy and putting them together in a group. And, and this means that we can watch the same individuals when they're high versus low status or low versus high status or stay at sort of a middle status range. It's exactly the sort of thing that you can't do in humans, right? Like people would not, I think, sign up for a study where you said, well, how about we just – um, you know, randomize your education or randomize your income and uh, you have to live that way with whatever you get for, you know, X amount of time and also we're going to watch you all the time. <laughs> um, so, um, so we do that and that's how we think we can pin down whether it's social status and the stresses associated with being different social status per se that affects the things that we measure next. And so we've done a lot of follow-up on these measures of gene activity and um, measures of the epigenome, but we've also been interested in things like, well, behavior, um, you know, measures of, uh, of you know, personality in, in the um, macaques we're following. And what we find is that some things are, are sort of stable, but a lot of things – a lot of the ways that these animals interact with each other, especially how, you know, bold they are um, or how uh, anxious they are, follows a lot from their social environment, which has been quite interesting. Um, we've also been interested in how the hormones involved in our stress response um, uh, are are changed as a function of social status. And we find, for example, that females who end up, you know, sort of low in that social status ladder end up um, going into this, this sort of state where they become less reactive to short-term stressors mm-hmm. um, than high-status females. So... You know, this points again to something you sort of suggested before, which, you know, obviously this must involve all sorts of different systems in the body, right? Not right. just immune cells. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, immune cells don't have eyeballs and, and, <laughs> and they don't have friends and they don't, you know. Um, right now we wish they did, but right, yeah, exactly. that's another story. Exactly. Um, so I think those other kinds of analyses we've done point to the fact that um, differences in the social environment, in this case structured by social status, just have these kind of really widespread pervasive effects on um, how these animals behave, uh, you know, something we can see directly by watching them, and also what's going on, you know, under the skin, actually deep inside their cells where we can't see it, but we can now measure it using genomic tools. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, you're, you are doing some really uh, great stuff. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, you are listening to Radio In Vivo, and today my guest is MacArthur Fellow and Duke University Professor Jenny Tung. And, uh, Jenny, we're centering in on the uh, expiration of our hour together. Okay. So I, I feel obligated. You probably don't want to hear it, but I have to ask you about the MacArthur Grant. Uh, it's five years, $625,000 with no strings attached. Uh, you're probably already sick of this question, but it's the obvious one. It would be remiss of me if I didn't ask it. How do you uh, plan to use the funding? Have you figured that out yet? 
Um, I haven't entirely figured it out, but I can tell you uh, a few things that I have decided to do that I probably wouldn't have felt the freedom to do otherwise. Sure. Uh, one mm-hmm. is to simply remodel a room in my house so I have an office at home. Great. Uh, which Good I think. Good timing on that. Exactly. <laughs> and I think will have a big impact on my life and my productivity. Um, <laughs> and the other is that I am going to take a sabbatical uh, next year. And um, I've been able to take a longer sabbatical than I might have otherwise um, because of the sort of freedom that the fellowship gives me. Um, and I'm hoping to be able to spend a, to- a lot of time thinking seriously about where we want to take our, our research next and potentially start planting some of the seeds for those next steps. Wonderful. Well, uh, my congratulations. Uh, somewhat belated, but uh, uh, it's it must have been wonderful news. Oh, and, and by the way, dinner is on you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, getting back to your research, Jenny. Yep. Um, do the animals you study offer you the chance to see more clearly how social hierarchies affect DNA and, by extension, health? Um, again, we're back to the extrapolation question. Are you talking about um, see more closely in a parallel towards humans? Yes. I hope so. Um you know, part of the reason that we study non-human primates and part of the reason that people study primates in general, part of the reason the field of primatology exists is because um, we and others recognize how much we share, we humans share with other living primates. I mean, they're our closest living relatives, macaques and baboons. If you look at their DNA, uh, it's 94% identical to ours. Um with respect to my particular work, it's so clear now, um, I mean, I think it's been clear to people watching them for, for some time, how important their social relationships are to their day-to-day experience, okay, but also um, how those day-to-day experiences compound to influence how they do over their entire lives. The species I study, like us, we call them obligately social, meaning that they're always found in social groups. They don't have this sort of um, evolved option to be solitary if they feel like it or live in groups if they happen to be particularly extroverted or whatever. <laughs> they, they, they are always group living animals and we so, pretty much so no are hermit too. baboons. Then. No <laughs> hermit baboons. I do not, I do not think a hermit baboon would do very well out <laughs> on the savanna. Um, and in fact, what we now know, and this is another parallel to humans that makes us think, yeah, by studying these guys, we can learn something about humans. Um, more socially isolated, less socially integrated baboons live shorter lives, which is true for humans, too. And it turns out, um, as increasing numbers of studies come out, it's true for Barbary macaques, and it's true for bottlenose dolphins, and it's true, um, you know, for uh, species across the social mammals. And so, yeah, I think they have a lot to tell us about what social lives mean for us, including how they, you know, uh, affect how our genes work. I see. Uh, well, uh, Jenny, uh, probably the last question for you, but sure. one I did not want to leave on the table. Uh, I can't let you go without hearing about your study involving baboon poop. 
Oh, <laughs> we actually do lots of studies involving baboon poop. I, oh, okay. I realize this is not a, a common perspective, but, you know, <laughs> I had a former postdoc who used to re- refer to it as, um, you know, some of our, st- our work on, on, on poop as fecal alchemy because we were turning poop into gold. <laughs> um, and he meant that because we have the opportunity to derive so many insights, it turns out, from, um, you know, pieces of poop left on the savanna that nobody else wants, including the baboons. Uh, so some of the work that I've been most involved in uh, is asking whether we can take these, you know, these fecal samples and we can sequence entire baboon genomes from them. Um most poop, including ours, is is made up of bacteria, but a little bit of it comes from us or from the baboon, you know, from from the individual who donated it. Mm-hmm. And we were quite interested in whether we could sort of fish out the small fraction, the one percent or less, that actually belonged to the baboons, and use that to produce genetic data that we could use for all kinds of things, you know, understanding how individuals related and and where they moved and their evolutionary history. And so, yes, we have thousands and thousands of fecal samples in our freezers as a result. I see. Well, well done. I was more specifically uh, going for your your results that s- said something about how friendly the animal is ah, relating work. to the microbiome. Yes, yeah. yes. Again, poop is gold. Sorry so I didn't lead you in No, that's okay. <laughs> we derive information about the genetics of the animals, but we also derive information about the microbes in their guts. And um, it turns out that if we look at the microbes in the guts of baboons that – uh, certainly that's affected by diet and it's affected by season. You know, has it rained a lot or is it not? But one of the things that we discovered a few years ago um, is that uh, individuals uh, who share more similar microbiomes, who have similar bacteria in their guts and therefore in their fecal samples, are the individuals who are socially bonded to one another, who in fact are doing a lot of physical contact. They're grooming with each other. Mm -hmm. So we can construct these networks of of grooming behavior in the baboons because they're so closely watched. And, you know, some just like in humans, some individuals hang out together a lot and some individuals never do. So what we found is essentially that the gut microbiomes of baboons looked like the gut microbiomes of their friend baboons. And that is, I think, some... Uh, of the uh, earliest evidence that social transmission, direct social relationships, might be quite important in shaping this aspect of our bodies that, you know, through lots of different studies, people increasingly recognize uh, is important for disease risk and is important for metabolism and all those kinds of things. Well, Jenny, we are out of time. That's a fascinating uh, conclusion, and I'll bet there are people working on that those very same ideas in humans as well. Absolutely. Uh, Well, thank you so much for being my guest on Radio In Vivo today, uh, and best of luck with your research in the future. Thank you so much, Ernie. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio In Vivo. You can check the website, radioinvivo.net, for our lineup of upcoming shows. And visit our Facebook site. Uh, Also has that lineup. Join us again next time for Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on Volunteer Power, WCOM-FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. 
And if you enjoy the show, we ask that you support this station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and make a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.